0: On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to be chatting about what Canada can do to deal with foreign, as in American, multimedia, social media companies like Facebook and Twitter and Google and all the rest if they don't want to follow Canadian laws as far as it goes to elections and stuff like that. Do we have any recourse? We talked to an internet lawyer about that. We are also chatting about the idea that is commonly held that the NBA does not want a Canadian team to win. Is the league biased? Will the referees be finding new ways to hold the Raptors down? Well, we're going to talk to a guy who who knows his way around the refereeing room pretty well. And we talked to Bubba O'Neill, our buddy from CHCH, about all kinds of stuff, sports and Raptors-related. Resale tickets. How is it that one person has to love hockey or basketball, but nobody seems, or a lot of people say they can't love them both equally? On and on and on. Stick around. We got lots to talk about.
1: Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML.
0: How do we ensure that our elections aren't affected by foreign influences or internet intentionally fake news? It's a big issue, obviously. We have heard about nothing but this for the past two or three years now, especially in the States. Anyway, not there, not making an appearance at this committee hearing was Mark Zuckerberg, the guy who runs Facebook, who refused the Canadian government's summons to come and speak. Uh, Other Facebook executives were there, though, and they said when they were asked, they said the social media giant will not, won't remove misleading content from the platform during Canada's upcoming federal election campaign. So what do we do about this? It's a challenge. Uh, Michael Geist is a law professor at the University of Ottawa. He is also the Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law. Michael, thanks for doing this today. Oh, sure. Happy to. Are you surprised when you hear an answer like that, that uh, they cl- seem to be so uh, almost obstinate about what they may do if that situation arises?
2: Yeah, I mean, in fairness, I think it's it's a bit more nuanced than that. Okay. Uh, it's certainly the case that um, Facebook maintains that they don't want to play the role of judge and jury about taking sort of all, complaint, all content that gets complaints uh, down. And, and I think they're right in that regard. I don't think we want Facebook playing that role either. I don't think there's any doubt that Facebook has to play a more proactive role in dealing with the harms online. The challenge, and I think it became pretty clear even during some of the discussions this week as part of this grand committee, was how do you strike a balance between, on the one hand, identifying content that, that ought to come down under appropriate circumstances, and on the other, uh, recognizing that freedom of expression is, are important safeguards as well.
0: You raise a really interesting point. It's something we've talked about on this show before, and that is what one person may claim is fake news; another person claims is an opinion. Uh, so, how do you go about doing that? If if you are a liberal and I'm a conservative, or vice versa, and we each argue that something that's on there is not accurate, who who is the eventual adjudicator?
2: Well, I would say a judge should be the adjudicator, I and mean, at least that's the ideal mechanism the challenge i think that we have is that this area moves quickly courts tend to move a bit more slowly and given the pure the volume of this uh, i think a lot of people say well that's whether or not that can scale to the level that we need to be able to address these issues Represents a significant challenge. Uh, I will say that even during the hearing, they, there were a couple of issues that came up that highlighted just how difficult this issue is, and how even within the context of some of the politicians, there are differing views. I'll give you a good example. That would have to do with a recent video involving U.S. politician Nancy Pelosi, right? Which which some members of that panel were insistent Facebook ought to take steps to remove. Facebook described what they did do, which fell short of removing, but they took some steps to try to deal with it. And yet, we're talking about what is a real video, it just slow down. And that question of should it come down and who should who should decide that it comes down is a really really difficult one.
0: And and th- I mean there's a co- comparison there I think to be made to say if someone may if a politician makes a comment and someone puts up a part of a long soliloquy, and it puts them in a bad light, should you be forced by law to put up the entire soliloquy to add some extra context that that politician may think that gave him a better shot or something? You start to get down into a, into a rabbit hole here where the rules can become dauntingly complicated.
2: You absolutely do. In fact, we had around that same time, we had one group, Canadian friends of... Of broadcasting, who are involved in some of these issues, who put out a parody video of what they what purported to be a Facebook executive, although it wasn't really a Facebook executive. And, and it seemed that that might have even confused some people as to whether it was legitimate or not. But what I thought it did the best was really highlight just how difficult it is at times to distinguish between legitimate parody and other kinds of content that we might say ought to come down. And those are really not easy issues to sort through. And this notion that, you know, you broke it, you bought it, Facebook, you ought to just fix this and find a solution doesn't sit well with, I think, a lot of people.
0: What are the abilities right now, as far as you're concerned, what are the abilities for these big companies, whether it's Facebook or Google or Twitter or whatever, to identify these issues, these videos or whatever else that are online, and this goes back to the Christchurch uh, the murders down there, where he, the, the killer live-streamed his killings, and people said they should have not allowed that. Are, are they physically capable of monitoring every single thing that is going up and immediately responding this way?
2: No, I don't think they are, and and I don't think we'd want them to. We're talking about you know, sort of some of the largest spaces for speech on the planet. And the idea that we'd want that actively surveilled um, by a private company deciding what's good and what's bad Mm. uh, strikes me as pretty frightening. What we do want is to ensure that these companies are responsive where they are made aware of these kinds of issues, that they take steps to block users from repeatedly offending some of these policies, and that they properly enforce the very policies that they have in place. And I think that there are many who have looked at the issue and raised questions as to whether or not they've been actively doing that or not.
0: And you, in that comment, you just used the word that seems to be central to this whole thing, and that's offence or offence. And again, it goes back to the idea that, I mean, and we'll get to it in just a moment, but uh, where there are hard and fast rules, but Generally, one man's offense may not offend another man, and again, I go back to the point, who's the arbiter? Who is the one? Do we want Mark Zuckerberg or his minions deciding what is offensive and what isn't offensive? Because I don't know what their qualifications are for that.
2: Right. No, I think that's right, and I think it gets even more complicated than that, because of course, we're talking about a globalized environment, and so to what extent are not just one person's views, but one person's views in one country set off against the views of Mm. another in some other country, and does one country get to dictate
0: for other countries what they can and can't Mm. see? What, if anything, Canada can do about foreign social media providers, things like Facebook and Twitter and Google and those, they were supposed to be, and in some cases were, speaking in front of a government committee this week to try and prevent interference or fake news or those kind of things from being in our coming federal election and beyond. Uh, Michael, you know, before we, I I should have asked you this right off the top because it's probably is the basis of everything we're talking about. Clearly there are people in the Canadian government who care greatly about this because it's their jobs potentially that could be lost if they're voted out, maybe based on information online they don't like. But do you get the sense that most Canadians care deeply about this or do they look at this and go sort it out?
2: Well, I think that there is, this issue has certainly emerged as a real issue in the last uh, number of months and far more than certainly we had previously. I mean, I, I think that no matter what you think of the hearings that we saw took, take place in Ottawa this week, the, the type of discussion that's taking place has shifted dramatically over the last uh, year, certainly, where previously there was... You know, some doubt as to whether or not this was an issue, and whether or not there ought to be some kind of responsibility or role for the, these large platforms and intermediaries. It certainly feels as if we've now moved well past that. Um, the question is not whether; it's how. How do we go about dealing with some of these sorts of issues? And so that that signals to me that I think there is a recognition amongst the broader population, certainly amongst elected officials, that. There are great things that come out of social media, out of the technology, but there are also concerns that arise out of this as well, and we need to be thinking about potential solutions that try to mitigate against some of the harms.
0: And, and as you said before the break, part of the struggle here, before we get to your suggestion maybe for an answer, is there are vastly different standards in Canada, in the States, in Europe, elsewhere, and making one answer that fits all becomes impossible.
2: There are. We actually even saw it throughout the course of these hearings where, you know, as we were just talking before the break about the Pelosi video, I mean, that there were differences in view about what ought to be done, even amongst the politicians that were sitting around the table. And, and that in some ways ought to be unsurprising because there were politicians that came from countries that have taken very aggressive approaches in terms of takedown requirements. Singapore, for example, was there, and they've got, those, they've got pretty aggressive takedown rules. But their rules, I don't think, would pass constitutional muster mm-hmm. in Canada, where we've got a Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and the safeguards for freedom of expression are very strong, not quite as strong as the United States, but, but in, certainly in that direction. And so, proposals or solutions that have been adopted in some jurisdictions simply don't work in some of the other ones. So...
0: Uh, you're the expert you've you've studied this you've looked at this a lot what do we do is there any kind of steps that we can take or do we just say you know what we can't so leave it alone
2: no no I, I don't think we're anywhere near saying leave it alone i think in some ways we've we ought to start by saying we need to deal with the easier issues if there are if there is such a thing as opposed to some of the, the challenge that i think has has arisen is raised but do it in part because it was widely is a really hard edge case. I mean, it really does get into that kind of mushy middle ground of legitimate freedom of expression with a set off against the harm and and the say let's try to try to fix the really the the to the extent to which they're easy the easier problems out there.
0: And again, I know as you point out, it's more nuanced. But generally, you take stuff down just because you tell us to because it doesn't fit with whatever we this is the internet we can't just it's not like delivering something stop a a truck and say no you can't bring those goods in here it's the internet can we really short of turning or blocking or censoring a a site can we do anything about this
2: yeah i i I guess i i want to push back just a little bit in, in emphasizing that facebook was i think a lot more nuanced than that for example on terrorism content They will tell you that more than 90% of terrorism content never even appears on their platform as they take steps to stop it from ever appearing, and they're able to remove virtually the entire remainder of that content uh, within an hour of it being up online. So that's one example. child pornography they have similar kind of data in terms of being able to move very quickly Fair enough. so in fact, they are taking steps, and they certainly will take steps where they're facing with very with court orders and the like i mean they're they are not above the law in that sense. The challenge they face is, do we play that role of judge and jury in terms of taking down legit content so their response, for example, in the Pelosi video was we haven't taken it down, but we have taken steps." to try to mitigate the harm. So we have decreased it in the algorithm, so fewer people will see it. We've added warnings to it to for people who do either send it around or access it so that they have some of that broader context. So they have taken steps to try to deal with it. I don't think it's fair to say they've simply said, we're not doing anything at all here.
0: And as you say, we got to go, unfortunately, but as you say, um, it is a it is a difficult thing because not only constitutionally, it's unclear about censorship, all the things we can do, but people will lose their minds if all of a sudden the government says, oh, by the way, your favorite website has just been shut down at the border until the election is over. that That's a tough sell.
2: Oh, I don't think uh, people would react well, <laughs> nor should they. And in nor fact, let's they. face it, we've got clear protections in Canada to safeguard against precisely that.
0: Michael Geist, Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law, really appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this today. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: Don't know if you heard anything about this, maybe in passing. I mean, I know it hasn't been very well publicized, so you may have missed it. But the NBA Finals start tonight in Toronto and the Raptors are playing. Did you catch anything about that before? Is it ringing any bells at all for you? Oh, yeah. Uh, For the first time ever, the Finals will be played outside the United States, and this, of course, is gaining all kinds of traction. The last game of the previous series in Canada drew nearly 7 million TV viewers, and that's just the ones they could count, not counting people in bars or in Jurassic Park or people's homes, probably the real number closer to 8 or 9 million, Neither are, are nearly a quarter of all Canadians were watching. Here's the thing, though. And and this series, of course, as a result, has been broken down and dissected and everything else. But there's one thing that I want to get to that I haven't heard any talk about. Because every single time the Toronto Raptors have been in the playoffs, this year or previously, there has been a sense, a real belief in many corners, that the NBA does not want a Canadian team to win because that will affect U.S. TV ratings because Canadian TV numbers don't count in the American ratings. And there is, at least numbers-wise, there's something to say for that. Uh, Last round, TV numbers were down 48% from the year before when it was two American teams. Fewer viewers, fewer ad revenue. Therefore, the belief, as I say, in some corners is the NBA doesn't really want a Canadian team to do well. So... That means, of course, that the NBA will do anything it can over the next few days to make sure the Golden State Warriors have an edge. Tighter calls against the Raptors, Golden State gets away with stuff. You're going to hear that. I guarantee you're going to hear that. Well, I wanted to bring someone in who can talk to this. He's a very familiar voice and name and person around this community uh, because of his business but also because of his background as an elite NCAA and Olympic referee in the game of basketball, his name is Ron Foxcroft, sir. How are you tonight?
1: I am terrific, Scott, and and I am as excited as many people that have jumped on the basketball bandwagon to witness this. Uh, and it is it's a historic event. It, it really is. is a Canadian team in the NBA Finals, and Scott, the NBA doesn't care that we're in Canada, <laughs> they don't care who wins the game, they just want it to be a fair game, fair officiated, exciting, preferably over time, and uh, now...
0: You you've heard that though, right? You have heard that, you're a referee, you've heard people say that for years.
1: Scott, I have heard that every single day, every single day, and you know something, I would imagine... In the confines of the TV companies, the TV networks boardroom, there is dialogue about a Canadian team being in the NBA Finals. And I would go as far to say in the uh, network boardrooms, there could be some concern. (laughs) I guess so. I worked for the NBA for 14 years. And let me tell you, I, I hear it every single day. Oh, the referees are out to screw the Canadians. The referees are, are, are making all these calls against the Raptors and so on and so on. Scott, unequivocally, not true. Not true. Okay. Referees aren't smart enough to be able to alter the calls other than the calls that they're trained to make. You know, if we were smart as referees, We would be radio show hosts on (laughs) CHML. Yeah,
0: I bet. Well, I mean, look, let me go through this. I I mean, I want to go through what the process is because you are uniquely positioned or very uniquely positioned to be able to explain what goes on because you have been an NBA officiating supervisor. You've been a referee who's been in these moments. There surely are, and this isn't evidence of a conspiracy, surely before games or before a series, the referees who are going to be assigned to this uh, they sit and they talk and they talk. I would assume about tendencies and player X is a flopper. Watch out for that. And player Y grabs guys on a screen. That that has to have been discussed before.
1: The preparation for a game like this, Scott, is intense. It's it's kind of you know same similar to the preparation for your show. When you have a great preparation, great time to prepare, it's a better show. And yes, these referees, they do prepare it's very intense and and something I should share with you that your um, listeners may appreciate there's a pad a pad and pen at the desk and you know we're in the age as you can appreciate in the age of technology these referees actually go over there during a dead ball and they'll write down let's look at play at 243 of the second quarter and they'll go in at halftime and you know this couldn't happen 20 years ago And they'll run the tape, and they'll run the tape into about 17 different angles just to make sure that they're making the calls, they're prepared, they understand the tendencies. And uh, I assure you, they they did their pregame this morning up in the hotel. They worked out this morning. They had a little rest time, and and they'll go in. And let me tell you, their pregame conference will be the most intense pre-game conference that you could ever imagine. Their post-game conference will start with, how could we do better?
0: Guaranteed there will be people over the course of this finals that will say the NBA has a conspiracy in place to make sure the Golden State Warriors win because they do not want a Canadian team to win. Uh, Ron, let's continue with this because it seems to me, and tell me that I'm wrong here, but you have 10 very large men in a small space, moving at a very high rate of speed most of the time. Would I be wrong in saying that an NBA referee could call a foul or a travel on every single possession?
1: Uh, Scott, you are 100% accurate. These are 7-foot guys. They're, they're above the rim. You take that guy in the Milwaukee series, the Greek freak, and, and Brooke Lopez. These are 7-foot guys moving at high speed, and they are very strong individuals, Quite frankly, Scott, it is really difficult. And you know what? That's the intrigue of the game. You could in fact have a hundred fouls in this game. There's gonna be there's gonna be forty. There's gonna be forty or there there's could be fifty, but there could be a hundred fouls, Scott. So you're entirely right. But the
0: So what's the we, bar then? Where's the bar for when you do blow the whistle?
1: Well, the bar is advantage, disadvantage, and uh, it's called consistency. In other words, they want the calls to be consistent at the north end as they are at the south end. They want the calls to be the same on the home team as the same on the, the visiting team. So if you're calling the freedom of movement or legal screen, Uh, at the north end, you better be sure to make that very same call at the south end.
0: So you made it very clear just before the break, the league itself, the the high, high high-level brass are not whispering in anybody's ear in the referee's room about who they're going to have, have an advantage in the game, And, and I don't think too many people truly believe that was the case, but you've made that clear. What about the intimidation, though? You have star players in this league. Guys who are huge names, have huge power in the sport. Do referees ever get intimidated when some of those players start giving it to them?
1: No, they don't, Scott. And I'll tell you why. The 12 referees that are assigned to the NBA Finals, they're the best and the brightest. Every single call they've made this season has been evaluated as to whether it's correct or incorrect. And, of course, you have the play-ons, the non-call is correct, the non-call is incorrect, these guys know exactly what they're doing tonight's game the three officials one of which I refereed with in the NCAA he was uh he was just starting and of course I was just finishing but you take these three guys tonight Scott James Capers from Chicago Jason Phillips and John Goble I would say collectively they've got 60 years of NBA refereeing experience I would say They've all, they work 15 games a month approximately for 10 months or nine months, whatever. That's a lot of basketball, Scott. So they are ready. They are trained. They are prepared. And they are ready for anything. When the crowd goes crazy, which they will, they don't hear it. It doesn't affect them, believe it or even, not. Even
0: like, when 20,000 people are chanting, ref, you suck, they don't hear it? Because <laughs> it it'll happen.
1: It, oh, I guarantee you, Scott, it's going to happen, but they're, no, they're unfazed, and, and I, I really do applaud the NBA, because um, these refs are the best. They rated out the best. Like, I mean, there's no gifts here.
0: Would they, you ever, Ron, as a, as a former ref, and you're not doing it right now, but let's say you were in this position, would you want your family to attend a game if you were an official?
1: Now, that's kind of dangerous. That is kind of dangerous. Um, only if they were disguised. Uh, <laughs> I remember. I remember my wife going to Indiana, and I tossed Bobby Knight out of the game in Indiana. Can you imagine?
0: You're a brave man.
1: My wife was in the stands, and somebody identified her. It take it took her two hours to get to the police car outside the Bloomington arena at Indiana and another two hours police escort, which was, I told her not everybody gets a police escort back to (laughs) Indianapolis. I mean, you know, sirens and all that sort of stuff. Most people just leave the game and go to Denny's. She got a police escort. So, no, uh, would I want my family in that stadium tonight, and I'm the referee on the floor? Number one, I'd eat it up. I want to be there with all that pressure, and I want to be the ref that makes the call in the last shot because I'm prepared. I don't want my family there because they'll probably get strangled.
0: What? A, okay, you mentioned, we just got a couple minutes left, you mentioned the idea of at, at halftime and then after the game there will be a review all the time. Yeah. It, very quickly, what is this absolutely blunt? If you've had bad calls, is someone going to tell you to your face, Ron, those were bad calls, or is it kind of gentle because you're probably feeling like crap anyway?
1: It's not gentle. It's forthright. It's honest. And when you've kicked a call, no uncertain terms, they tell you. They have seven auditors with about 17 different screens and 37 different uh, angles evaluating every call, every whistle, by the way, a Fox 40 whistle, that's blown in the game. Now, something your listeners may not know, watch tonight, Scott. The three referees wear a little black box on their belt. The wire goes up to within 12 inches of the Fox 40 whistle, and when the referees blow that whistle, number one, it's heard because the arena's going crazy shuts the arena clock off in, at the speed of light in a millionth of a second. Your listeners may not realize No, we'll
0: that. be looking for that one. We'll be, now, yeah. and, and by the way, is all of this stuff, and again, we're short on time, sadly, but is right. all this stuff with the reviews and the studying of the calls and everything, is, does this all go back to Tim Donahue and the ref that was busted for helping to gamble on the game? Is, uh, it, is it all from that? That was a
1: factor. There's no question about it. So make
0: sure that there's no question about what's going on now. It's all fair. No
1: question. The evaluations have never been more intense since the Dunaghy thing. And, of course, I work with uh, Dunaghy and his father. But, yes, I would have to say there's more intensity in the evaluations and the credibility in the evaluation of referees because of the Dunaghy gambling situation. And, of course, our supervisor is Monty McCutcheon, who is one of the best referees that ever – ever wore a Fox 40 whistle in the game of basketball. So he does a heck of a job. There's a lot of pressure on him. But these 12 guys that are working the final, they have earned their way to this final. And no, they will not be intimidated by this crowd, which you know, Scott, will be absolutely crazy.
0: I'm, my hope, Ron, we gotta go. My hope, my dream, although this will never happened, I want to see one of those refs have the cojones to toss Drake. That Ooh. would be hilarious. <laughs> that <laughs> would Drake be hilarious. Be contained. I, I, well, well, we'll see. Ron Foxcroft. Ron Foxcroft, former NCAA referee, former Olympic referee, uh, creator of the Fox 40 whistle. And look for that little black thing on the back of the ref so you know what's going on. Always appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Enjoy Scott, the game tonight.
1: You. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: Let's not waste any time because we've got. This game going on tonight that people, as I said earlier, may have heard something about. It's been lightly covered just here and there. Small mentions over the last few days. Uh, Toronto Raptors opening up the NBA Finals on Canadian soil. And I know one guy who's pretty excited about this. I can't imagine too many would not be excited about it. Well, Um, I wasn't talking about you. (laughs) (laughs) Bubba O'Neill from CHCH. Yes, I was talking about you. It's exciting. It's an exciting day. Look, I, I I think this is very similar, although we're a long way away from those days. I think this is very similar to the feeling we had the first time the Blue Jays played a World Series game in Toronto.
3: Oh, you're absolutely correct in terms of the awareness that it's brought to the to, to you know to Southern Ontario and even Canada. I'll extend it to that where people are jumping on the bandwagon. People that maybe aren't even you know a huge basketball lots person. of I mean, people. It, you're getting into. You're getting into. You see, I don't know about lots of people. I, I think, think
0: there's tons of non-diehard basketball fans that have said, yeah, "I'm going to check this out" and have found it pretty exciting.
3: Here, here, here's where I, where, where I, I, I will adjust, just kind of fine tune what you're saying there, Scott. I think that is dependent on an age group thing.
0: I, I would, agree. I would agree. Older yeah. people, I'm saying, yeah. younger people all know about the Raptors.
3: They all know about the Raptors, and as if, I, I will continue to argue for several times. For I mean, I have asked enough people for. Whatever reason I say I have an, a, a, enough younger friends, girls, males, even younger parents, they prefer basketball to our you know what we would say are you know I mean a lot lacrosse is our national sport but also hockey as well too. A lot of people have grown up enjoying basketball uh, more so than than hockey now there's several reasons for that I, I think there's an economic issue there where kids you know, it's pretty easy to grab a ball
0: in a hoop. Same, right? with, yeah. Same, same reason for soccer. Same reason yeah. so many people oh, play absolutely. soccer. Absolutely,
3: absolutely. But I think even deeper than that is the changing demographics of Southern Ontario.
0: And I don't disagree with you. Although I'll say, I will say this about that issue. And I, I think you're not wrong. Uh, certainly, the the demographics the demographics have an issue in this. Right now there's a lot of people who are discovering basketball and, uh, as, as you say, older people and a lot of people who are big Raptors fans. If the Maple Leafs were in the finals and the Raptors were out right now, there would be all kinds of people who would be saying they are now completely hockey fans. It, we love, we're desperate, we are starving around yeah. here for a winner.
3: Absolutely. They're, they're not, And I think that's a huge, huge point. Absolutely. But I, like I said, I, I think... There are people, you know, like myself. I was not, you know, I wasn't at the first game, but I was there when, my, at the Sky Dome when the Raptors amazingly beat <laughs> beat Michael Jordan and the Bulls. When Steve Kerr, interesting enough, the head coach of the Golden State Warriors, missed a shot from the outside that would have won it. Uh, in that game, and amazingly, what were they, like a 12-win team (laughs) that beat the world champions? There is a
0: story behind that, though, that I can't remember who the coach at that time was. Uh, Brendan Malone. There was a story that somebody with the Raptors, I don't think it was Malone, had Michael Jordan and a bunch of the guys over for a huge bender that night before, and those guys were not feeling really well at that time. I don't know if it's true. It makes for a great tale, though.
3: It certainly does, and I think that's a familiar story that we're hearing a lot of times, and I know even from people that I know well inside the NBA circles, that the this is a favorite of many people, many players, many organizations, when they have to pick a road place of like get place of road venue that they can actually come and enjoy themselves they hope and wish sometimes that it's not an in and out that it's a night that you get to sleep over in toronto because they like to go out uh they like the restaurants the party atmosphere um, this is a well-liked city by many people in the NBA.
0: Well, for a number of years, I don't know if he still does it, but for a number of years, uh, Shaquille O'Neal used to come to Toronto for Carabana.
3: Yes, he used to actually host parties.
0: <laughs> you know, there is something I, I kind of would like to see, is a seven foot one, 340 340-pound guy doing the Carabana boogie dance on the lakeshore. <laughs> he would not be subtle. He would not be a subtle thing
3: you got to remember, though, I don't know, I can't remember what year it was, and I know you you might remember this, that there was an all-star game in Phoenix when he was playing with the Sun.
0: With the mask?
3: And he came out with the mask, and he laid down some beats.
0: He can move.
3: And he can move pretty good, as you said, for a guy at that size. And I mean, he's a little heavier now than at those playing days. But he could get down and get funky pretty, pretty well for a big fella.
0: It is one of the funny things about what we've just been talking about, about the people discovering basketball or the... I've heard lately, over the last little while, a number of people battling on social media and elsewhere about whether or not Toronto is a hockey city or a basketball city or whatever. This is to me much like the CFL NFL debate. Right? Why can you not enjoy them both? Why? Why? Why must you say that I am a basketball fan, not a hockey fan? Why I, I am only a CFL fan, not an NFL fan? is your mind, is your psyche, is your soul so small there's only room for one thing you can like? I've never understood this.
3: You know, Scott, and I'm going to be real honest with you, and this is just, you know, I can't speak for everyone, but I can speak for my experience and, and, you know, maybe educate some. As you know, I mean, before I came here, I spent, you know, almost a dozen years at a national sports network at Sportsnet. And at that time, absolutely, hockey was king. And... You know, we were a network that broadcast both the Raptors games and, uh, you know, lots of hockey and a national contract. And I found that there was a tremendous resistance from hockey people, from hockey people, fans of the National Hockey League, people that loved hockey, against basketball. And I'll never understand, you know, they're like, oh, I, that's the first time I'd ever heard, oh, you're a basketball guy, or you're a hockey guy, or I'm a hockey guy, and and I've always found that very weird as kind of like there was a kind of insecurity about maybe one day hockey being bypassed by this other sport. Or, you know what, I think you see it right now. What does Don Cherry do? And I know where this comes from. Uh, I mean, I can sense it where Don Cherry always talks about players dressing a certain way, acting a certain way, which is completely different to the way many players in the NBA act. And I'm not saying he's slamming basketball, but there's a definite old-school way of thinking that a lot of, not all, but a lot of, I would say, hockey people have about the way to be. You know, take example. Uh, Mitch Marner and Austin Matthews, instead of it being celebrated in earlier this year when they did those GQ spreads and were wearing clothes there were a lot of people in the hockey world knocking these guys, saying, we don't do that. We, we, we don't do that. We, we just don't do that in, in, in hockey. And I found that odd, because I think that is where hockey is slipping right now. I don't know the personalities of the great players of the game, I do in the NBA.
0: Well, and I mean, a part of that is very much helped by the fact that the court, you're very close to the action and you're not wearing a helmet and you're not wearing a lot of padding. So you can see these guys up close. I mean, basketball is built for star qualities that way. But again, to go back to the idea that somehow you have to decide whether you're a basketball guy or a hockey guy. My way of thinking is, look, if there is a contest, if there is a, a pressure within Toronto that, hey, the basketball team has done well now, the hockey team's got to catch up. I'm looking at Boston, and I don't think anyone in Boston went, you know what, man, when the Red Sox won, that sucked so hard because I'm a Patriots guy. N- nobody would ever say that. It's no. like, no, I'm just happy that we have teams around here that are winning winning championships, that are competing. I, I, uh, listen, I don't care what f- team. If it's around here, if it's the Ticats, if it's the Bulldogs, if it's the Leafs, if it's the Raptors, if it's the whatever, Let's just have some winners around here because we never seem to have them.
3: Yeah, and I agree with you. I, I think that's, I mean, I don't know how many times people have asked me this question, whether it be at a supermarket or at a bar or just some random person or even personal friends of mine. They're like, and a question will be what's your favorite sport? And I generally have say the same thing. Um, I, I have some things that are partial to me, like F1 racing, and that is sort of a sweet thing for my heart. I like to wake up in the morning and watch the races. But overall, I'm a sports fan. I don't like football. I like basketball. I like hockey. I love them all. They all require a different set of skills, and you know, and, and at times some can be more entertaining than others. You know, depending on what the situations are. But what I do find is I I. I, I find myself having favorite athletes more so than sports nowadays but this yeah this internal sort of sports discussion about what sport is you know my favorite sport and i'm not a hockey guy or i'm not a basketball guy it's very foreign to me
0: f1 huh did not pick you as an f1 it's a great great day for a motor race. oh yeah
3: uh, jackie yeah. stewart yeah, I, uh-huh. go, I mean, my first year, and I and I did something, you know, when it's to celebrate the last, uh, on, on CHCH, the past uh, anniversary of the passing of Ayrton Senna. Um, that's yep. the year in 94
0: where I started watching that. And tour. now Niki Lauda, and yeah. Uh, now, while we're talking basketball, and, and that's what we're going to be talking about, by and large, I want to ask you about this story that came out again this week. And it revolves around the fact that uh, the the Ford government has decided to back off on these rules about secondary ticket markets. And as a result, we're seeing ticket prices for the Raptors game on the scalpers or the secondary, whatever you want to call it, resale market go through the roof, like $60,000 tickets for the games. And we've got some other politicians that are saying this is completely wrong because how on earth can a family of four they should be able to go. It's almost a human right to be able to go and see the Raptors. And I'm looking, thinking, I saw today, or yesterday, or the day before, whatever it was, a single standing room ticket for the Raptors game tonight was nine hundred dollars. I don't care if it's sixty thousand for the resale. How many families of four can afford thirty six hundred dollars if you could okay. even find four of them to buy? This is the problem here, Bubba, Is not the secondary market. It's that's that's just a free market thing. It's the fact that. There is so much demand for tickets, no matter if it's first sale, second sale, whatever, that it's exceedingly costly, and it's always going to be exceedingly costly, unless your team bites.
3: Yeah, you know, I mean, Scott, this is absolutely ridiculous to me, and the fact that the Ontario government would waste any time, considering there are other issues in the in the process. Well, no, it's not them, it's the opposition it, in this or case. The, or the opposition, or anyone in government for the, to be spending any time on this is an absolute joke, and I mean that quite honestly. I mean, this is a free enterprise market where you know these kind of things. People will be able to buy or afford what they can afford. Uh, games are on television. If you can't go, um, you know, no one's complaining when you know when you said when the Blue Jays are are not being you know competitive. Uh, yeah, of course the ticket prices are going to be extremely affordable. They're going to be crying for people to go. And of course, when you're hosting an NBA championship, yeah, standing room tickets will be a thousand dollars. That's just the way it is. And if you don't like it, uh, again, watch the game on television or turn on the radio. Uh, that, that's to, to make any type of control or to expect it to be any different. This is no, this is entertainment. This is not sport. This is this would be the same thing for a Pearl Jam concert or a Jay Z concert. Like, I again, mean, this is just the way it is.
0: Beyond that, and here's the part I've never understood about this. And, I, and again, I understand that politicians are trying to make political hay when they can about a hot topic because people are looking at these ticket prices, going, "Holy cow." if you go to the grocery store tonight, Bob, on your way home from work and you buy a box of cereal, let's say, that box of cereal is marked up from the amount that the store paid from its supplier. This is actually how our whole system works is the secondary market, which a grocery store or a retail Absolutely. store, everything you buy, unless you go to the wholesaler, is marked up. And people in this society, the markup equals the amount people are willing to pay for stuff absolutely and if someone's willing to pay sixty thousand dollars for tickets you want to know something if i had those tickets and someone came to me and said i'll give you sixty thousand bucks yeah fine (laughs) take them go Uh, that seemed to work for me no i
3: i I feel the exact same way you know during this winter and i don't know what the reason was i just didn't do enough research on it but i I'm, i'm a fan of broccoli and I'm a fan of cauliflower. Broccoli, wow. Right. Broccoli and cauliflower. F1 and broccoli.
0: Well, you got an exciting Sunday morning.
3: <laughs> My favorite, favorite <laughs> vegetables. All right. Now, there was a time I wanted to do a little broccoli and cauliflower salad. I went to the supermarket, and at that time, Scott, I'm not joking you, this was in
0: in January. During the cauliflower the, surge.
3: The cauliflower, I don't know if it was a surge or what was going on. All I know is that the cauliflower cost it was listed at five ninety nine. Yep. Yep. And, I, and I had to say no to the cauliflower, right? So this is no different than Raptors ticket or it says as a, a concert to go see Black Sabbath or whatever the case is, right? This is just that's uh, a whole supply-demand thing. And, of course, I had to do without the cauliflower because I wasn't paying $75.99 for it. There, but I'm sure there were, there were people that did.
0: There are 20,000, give or take, seats in First Ontario, or First Ontario, in uh, uh, Scotiabank, place, Scotiabank Center, Scotiabank Plaza, Scotiabank Arena, whatever the heck it's called these days. Like, There's so many Scotiabank places in BC and Ottawa and I can't keep track. Anyway, the place in Toronto, there's like 20,000 seats. That means that, and, and there are what, 6 million people in the greater Toronto area, plus then you go another hour outside and you get up to about 10 million people? I
3: think that's fair.
0: There are more people, by a few, than can possibly jam into that arena. Somehow positioning the idea that you going to a game Is something nearing a human right is asinine it's completely asinine and it's and again I just I'm I'm amazed I shouldn't be I'm amazed that politicians wait for these moments to try and make hay and then do it in ways that you look at them and you say are you on crack like have you are you (laughs) should you be in post concussion (laughs) protocol right now because you got banged on the head this is stupid
3: the, the only time I can ever see this being an issue, Scott, is if the franchise was a government-owned and run franchise. Yes, yes, fine. Uh, you know, or, or maybe I'll extend it to like, um, the Green Bay Packers would be a good example here. Um,
0: community-owned.
3: A community-owned team where I would be like, well, hold on, guys. This is out of, this is a, these prices are a little bit out of line for your community. That's the only time I think you, you could actually raise any questions about it. you know. But I don't even think like, there.
0: I don't even think there, because this has got nothing to do with human rights. Attending a basketball game is not a human right. If, if, <laughs> if grocery stores were cl- conspiring together to raise the price of groceries where people could not afford it, that's something different. And housing and clothing, those kind of things, that's something different. This is a luxury item that we don't have in our constitution in our charter of rights that says every canadian in addition to housing clothing medical care also has the right to get floor seats to sit near drake for a raptors final series game that's not a right and if you can't afford it go somewhere and watch it
3: if whoever proposes wants to offer some type of tax break so that all can go to raptors and blue jays and tiger cats and Honey Badger games, <laughs> like if that's if that's what their angles are, well, maybe we can we can go down that line. But even that it would be absolutely asinine.
0: I mean, look, if Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment truly was trying to be, inc- I mean, we know they know how to make money, and we know that they are not given any breaks on their cost of tickets. But if they really wanted to. Really take the Toronto, Toronto base and beyond for every dime they could, they could have moved this final series into Rogers center and sold 55 or 60,000 tickets and they could have sold every single one of those and they could have made much more money than they are right now, you know. Again, it's, it's it's expensive beyond what I will ever afford. I don't know what they pay at CHCH. Whether you can afford sixty six thousand no, bucks for no, a pair so of tickets? I
3: mean, beyond the media pass, there there is absolutely no no none none no reason for me to to, to open up my pocketbook and and go again. And now, if this was like the old CFL days, where I mean, which was the
0: blackouts,
3: dumbest, dumbest thing ever. I won't go that too far. No, there, but blacking out games.
0: Well, Again, different story. I, I
3: might be, I might be inclined to open up my pocketbook a little deeper, but, but
0: I might be inclined in that case to say, you know what? If we're not letting people watch the games now, and we're charging a fortune, then maybe I could say we can at least have that discussion. I still would disagree, but at least it would be a somewhat logical, coherent position to take. This just isn't. Anyway, anyway, uh, do you uh, are you a prediction guy? You know, I, I got put to the, I got. I got I'm not going to force today. you into it if you, you want know, to. I, I mean, I, I mean I already
3: vocalized it. I mean, I I just I think the Raptors, I mean, for anyone to think that the I mean I spent the last couple of days to so 3 days in North Carolina and had several sports conversations with people there and you know there there were, you know, some people that believe that they have no chance against this team and I, I think that it would be absolutely ignorant to think so. I mean, the Toronto Raptors have shown and proven now that they can play with the, with anyone quite honestly and and I know regular season games don't really mean tremendous Amounts because both teams have changed, and in their games earlier this season, they were played in November and December. But both games were wins by the Raptors. So at the very, at the very least, I do believe those two games offer a blueprint on how to beat a team like this. This is a this is a team that's in the championship for the fifth straight year. You know we're we're taught we're on history right now. Um, and I think the Raptors can beat them. I believe it will be a long series. To think the Raptors could do this in four or five games would be absolutely shocking if anything like that happened. I think regardless, six games either side for either team, somehow I find a, somewhere in my heart, and I don't know if it's my head or my heart, I'm seeing a celebration in Toronto in a Game 7 victory.
0: We will hold you to it. And if you do, I, I, have a, I will tell you this. If you are predicting the Raptors in seven, if the Raptors win in seven, I will personally come to the CHCH studios and on the air present you with a ceremonial head of broccoli. <laughs> I prefer the cauliflower overall, though. I will present you with a ceremonial celebratory head of cauliflower on the air for your brilliance. I don't know if that could get through security. I'd probably be tackled at the door. Weird guy showing up with vegetation to give to an on-air personality, but I'll try. I will do. If they win in seven, I will be there with that.
3: If you want to put a little extra love and effort into it, you can mash it up and put a little butter in it. And like, I really like it. it's kind of it's like a it's like a fake mashed potatoes. It's like the new wave of you know just this it's, new way of eating. It, I, and I
0: must say, the first time I tried it, I was like, this is outstanding. The new mashed potatoes. <laughs> Next week on The Scott Radley Show, cooking tips with Bubba O'Neill. Uh, sir, thanks for doing this today. Appreciate it. Enjoy this series.
3: Uh, I hope everyone does, and uh, go Raptors, go.
1: The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.